Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Kenneth Kosick. He's the Harriman Professor of Neuroscience at UC Santa Barbara in California. We're going to talk about Alzheimer's and a, uh, a genetic mutation that might hold clues to preventing it. So, Kenneth, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Richard, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so tell me about what spurred your interest in Alzheimer's and how long have you been working on it? I've been working on it my whole career, which is now spanning uh, something like three decades or more. Uh, I um, I was trained as a neurologist in Boston, spent many years um, in Boston at Harvard. And uh, after my training as a neurologist, I went right into research um, there and um, began with work on Alzheimer's immediately after my uh, my resident in neurology. Continued to see patients, and even to this day, I'm interested in the clinical side, but most of my work is laboratory underlying genetic mechanisms of Alzheimer's. So what's the current focus of your research? What are you studying? Well, we have a twin focus. I, uh, on the one hand, there is um, a focus that is more clinical. It's um, a project that you slightly alluded to at the beginning, looking at um, uh, genes that can cause the disease. A small number of people, there are uh, these very serious genes, inevitably. Fortunately, they're not common, but in the families we've found that have those genes, we can really learn a lot because they those genes tell us about the whole process of how this begins, all the molecular stuff that happens in the brain as it unfolds. The other side of my research is uh, less clinical. What I just mentioned is 
really oriented toward a specific population, actually, in, in Colombia, in South America, where his family lives. And we study the family or genetics um, quite a bit, a long time. But the other side of my work is at my university. I'm now California, Santa Barbara, mentioned. And there I have a laboratory with graduate students and postdocs where we study the actual uh, cell biology of disease, with uh, how we can reproduce the, in a dish, in a culture, cell biology at a very detailed level. I've heard there's like an APOE4 gene that uh, predisposes people to Alzheimer's, but genetically, like, what do you see? What are, you know, are there certain polymorphisms or mutations that really predispose people big time? Yes. And that, uh, yeah, that question is right on target. So let me lay it out. The um, most people that get Alzheimer's, we don't really have a clear idea of what we, why they get it. They get what we call, they get uh, what we call sporadic disease. And they tend to get it later in life, over 65 for sure, but it starts to get quite common as people get over 75 or into their 80s. Now, there is a form of Alzheimer's that's quite rare in which there are these genes, we call them autosomal dominant genes, that is, they're inherited from one generation to the next. And if one of your parents has it, then you have a very high likelihood of, of getting that gene and getting the disease. Those are, in those cases, these genes that are inherited within families are um, have early onset. They get the disease in their 40s usually, although it can be even earlier. So we have these two categories, one sporadic where the genetics is still unclear and the small number, less than 1%, that have these clear disease-causing mutations. If there is a lot of Alzheimer's in a person's family, that, you know, Aaron has it, a couple of siblings have it, then we um, usually recommend testing to find those genes, but they're quite uncommon. On the other hand, if you have Alzheimer's at an older age, it doesn't mean that you're completely free of any genetic influence. Uh, it means that genes play a less prominent role. So if you have Alzheimer's or a family member has Alzheimer's, they're getting into their late 70s, um, maybe there was one parent that had it, they may have inherited some more mild type of genetic risk. And you mentioned the one that we know the most about. It's called APOE. About uh, 25% of people have that gene. It varies a little bit differently in uh, Caucasians versus Hispanic versus Black populations, but it's around that number. And if you have what we call one flavor of that APOE gene, that is a kind of um, variant in the form of the gene called APOE4, your risk goes up of getting it. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. It just means your risk goes up. So what's different about the the 1% to the small percentage of people that, you know, it's all over their family, they get it early, et cetera, versus the more common type? Yeah. Well, What's different about them is they, they have a mutation. There are several mutations that do this. Uh, basically, there are three genes that can be affected in this very serious manner. And what's different about them is that they, um, they basically have a mutation in a gene that is producing amyloid. Amyloid, as you know, is this bad stuff that collects, it's a sticky stuff that collects in the brain and is one part of the picture of Alzheimer's disease. If you have a mutation in this gene, it's called presenilin, and you make more of the amyloid, that gunk is now collecting in the brain, destroying the connections called synapses and killing cells. Uh, so that's, that's probably why they have this accelerated course. Well, what causes, so you have these gene mutations, what, what happens transcriptomically or 
you know, proteomically, what it, can yeah. you connect the mutation all the way through the phenotype difference? Yeah, wow, that's the coolest question. I mean, that's exactly what we want to do. Uh, the to go all the way from the transcriptome, what the gene is making and what it's where it's going wrong is a very, very big challenge. What we can do is we can begin to actually track the pathway a little bit. So just as you mentioned, we can actually put this gene into different culture systems and look at what other genes are affected by the mutation and create a whole network of molecular disorganization that's happening in the brain. And that's been really very, uh, given us some promising leads to interfere in the disease somewhere downstream where one mutant gene is now leading to a whole cascade of genes that are going wrong. But you really ask the most challenging question of all is, once you have all these molecules that are messing up the brain, uh, how do you then get a phenotype? Why is it that those mutations are causing some sort of a, a dementia? That's the biggest jump of all, how you actually go from this molecular picture, this molecular signature to the dementia itself. That's what we really- Well, I would think you'd, yeah, you'd start at the ends. You'd start at the very, you know, from the gene to the, to the way it transcribes um, you know, maybe the epigenetics of it, this mutation. Has anyone looked at that? Are there clues there? And then I guess you look at the other end, obviously, which a lot of people are doing it, the actual quacks, you know, people that are that have Alzheimer's or other dementia, physically what's going on with them, but you do single cell analysis, et cetera, what, you know, what does that look like? But yeah. I guess that's how you start is the end, right? Well, that's exactly right. And um, the all those things are going, we do a lot of that work, the single cell analysis. We do a lot of that work in my lab. And I do agree with you that uh, we are beginning to connect some of the threads here. So if I tell you that uh, here's the cells that have a making transcripts and they're not like the control cells, and there's a bunch of other genes that are also uh, being dysregulated, and that's causing some proteins to now get, uh, be at abnormal levels. And eventually there is a uh, something that goes wrong because cells may have problems now getting rid of proteins that are misfolded. That's a big deal right now. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Uh, people are really looking very hard at the so-called trash cans of cells, the lysosomes, how cells are getting rid of stuff. But if I tell you I have the answers to all that, I still can't tell you that all that stuff is now making a person's memory. And, uh, because there are fundamental concepts that we're missing about what is the true biological basis of um, of memory. I can correlate it with a lot of stuff, but the cause and effect is really challenging. Yeah, definitely. I know there's there's tons of factors. Um, you mentioned proteins being misfolded. So I've, I've heard that there's, I guess, chaperone proteins or chaperone molecules that help proteins fold properly. So, I mean, what's been observed um, in people with various mutations, is there like a down regulation of these chaperone proteins? Like why is there misfolding? Maybe you can 
again, dive in to more detail and go really micro and try to piece together the process. Yeah, so that's a very hot area and one that I too am particularly interested in. So let's go into that a little bit, a little bit of detail. So pro, the, the proteins that collect in Alzheimer's, one is this amyloid that collects extracellularly and forms this gunk. Uh, the one that we focus more on is probably the, the tau protein that misfolds inside the cell and causes these neurofibrillar. And tau is a perfectly normal protein. We all have it. We all need it. There aren't really clear it begins to misfold, aggregate, collect as inclusions inside the cell. We've known that for a long time. But what's become more interesting now is, is that it looks like the tau, when it becomes abnormal, it doesn't just stay in one cell. It starts to spread from cell to cell. Now, that process is called a prion-like process. Probably heard of prions. There, it's a very um, scary disease. This is, um, for instance, mad cow disease is such a disease. There's a protein called the prion protein that replicates simply by the protein moving from cell to cell and replicating its misfolded shape as it moves to the neighboring cells. That got a couple. There was two Nobel prizes uh, for given for that discovery. One by Carlton Gadicek when he first discovered the disease, the prion diseases. And then another one to Stan Prusner when he found all these that prion proteins misfold. In the case of the tau, we call it prion-like because it's not as scary as prion disease, where if you just touch the brain tissue, or in some cases um, in mad cow disease, eating cow brain, uh, you can get it. That's not the case with tau or Alzheimer's. But what is the case is is that for some reason we don't fully understand. The misfolded protein, just folded in a very characteristic way, gets out of the cell. And when it pops into the neighboring cell, it somehow templates the normal tau protein to misfold in exactly the way it misfolded in the cell from which it came. And that process is under intense scrutiny right now to understand how that happens. It's a topic where we have recently made, I think, a, a nice contribution to, find, to discover the receptor on the neurons that take up the tau as it moves from one cell to the next. So even though we don't quite fully understand the misfolding, we now have an, uh, a target that's picking up the misfolded tau, and maybe that can be targeted with drugs. And the tau is what? What kind of molecule is this tau? And how does yeah. it interact with amyloid? Interesting. So the tau is just a, it's, it's a protein. It We... One of the mysteries that still is remains in Alzheimer's disease is that we don't understand the relationship between the amyloid and the tau. They are two hallmarks of the disease that have not yet been fully connected. You have to have both to get the disease, but why you get both is very unclear. They're quite different. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Tau amyloid sits outside the cell where, the, where it collects in plaques whereas tau accumulates inside the cell where it accumulates as neurofibrillary tangles. And tau normally is, is attached to the microtubules where it helps move cargo, the cell contents along these railroad tracks called microtubules in cells. But once it moves off the microtubules, then we get into trouble. It starts to miss. So I guess you, you know, people have picked apart cells to see where the tau is in the cell. Like how do they determine where it normally is, and then where does it go when things go wrong? Does it, does it form plaques inside the cell, or does it get stuck in the yeah, membrane well, trying to exit? Where does it go? Yeah, it forms uh, these tangles inside the cell, and um, they 
they um, it it does normally tau is almost exclusively in you know different genes are transcribed in some of them quite specifically in certain cell types and tau is one of those genes it's made almost exclusively in neurons although there are exceptions and um, when it's made it travels to the axon in the nerve and that's where it lives when you have an axon an axon carries stuff from the cell body down these you know there's one axon that goes from your back all the way down to your big toe uh, axons are long and tau is involved in moving stuff along those long tracks to get stuff to the terminus that's that's nice normal tau that's what it's doing normally but then if it starts to become dissociated from those tracks called microtubules it then can aggregate, it gets stuck inside the cell. Some of it may get out and passage to a neighboring cell, as I was discussing a moment ago. But what exactly goes wrong that triggers that process, you know, remains a little bit mysterious, more than a little. But what, so what is the structure of tau? Has it been observed? Is, is there a free form of it? I mean, like you said, there's the tangled form. There's the form, I guess, that is, is it bound to the axons? Is there a third type of form where it's in an intermediate stage? and if you look at, you know, the physical formation of it in, you yeah. know, the least two out of the three stages, what do you observe? Like, does it have functional areas? What does it look like? Yeah. So it, um, as a protein, it, uh, it's, um, it's bound to these structures, um, these microtubules to hold them intact. There's a domain on tau that is the binding domain to microtubules that's toward the carboxy terminus. And then there's another portion toward the amino terminus, the other side of a protein that points out from the microtubules. It sticks out from these railroad tracks. You can think of it like the ties between two rails on the track that it's doing. So that, that's where it is normally. And then, so that, and that's the one form that you mentioned, it just is there as a single protein that can be observed under an electron microscope. And then something happens that's still a little bit, that's still unclear, that starts to cause tau to dissociate from the microtubule and become predisposed to aggregation. So that process is what we're very interested in. But when it does start to do that, that when it changes into this aggregated form, we know a lot about that shape too. So when it changes into that form, it begins to associate with other tau molecules and it makes these very interesting shapes. One, it's like um, they, they form these, like you can think of the a, a letter C and another letter C in which the two letter, the two letter C's are facing each other and they're interdigitating. It makes shapes mm. like that and it just piles up, piles up like millions of them. And they start to collect inside the cells and cause damage. Well, if they're facing each other and they're interdig- interdigitating then on the outside part of the C, I would think this would lead to like filaments of tau, like very long filaments that are the chains. Because the outer part of it, the back of the sea, necessarily wouldn't bind. You're right. So that's exactly what happens. They do form, they interdigitate with each other on the inside, but then they stack. And they stack in a manner in which it's called a beta sheet. That's the technical term. But it stacks in a way that creates exactly what you said, these long fibrils. And that's what neurofibrillary tangles are in, in, in the disease. So what um, for tau that is bound to, let's say, you know, an axon, what does it look like? Again, if we represent it as a C, does the C clamp around? Is it like a C clamp, literally, around a long axon tube? No. uh, While it's in the axon, it's not 
and the C shape. It doesn't start to form that shape until it moves out of the, off the microtubule. It might still be partially in the axon, starting to move into the cell body. Once it starts to form that C shape, it's becoming a troublemaker. And, uh, but while it's nice and normal and just sitting in the axon, it's, it's not all aggregated. They're just single tau molecules. They're very happy. They're just sitting there spread down all through the axon, keeping the, um, these railroad tracks, the microtubules, uh, intact. If you look at healthy neurons, do they have zero, you know, fibers of tau? Yeah. Or do they have a little bit, just not nearly as much as people that have tangles? They, uh, in, I'll answer in a glib way and say they have zero. But then I have to caution a little bit here, which is, is that as we get older, and I'm not talking about Alzheimer's now, but if, um, if you know, if you're in your 50s and uh, maybe, you know, maybe you've had a few head injuries or maybe not, but many people when they're in their 50s have a few of these tangles in their brain, very limited, very localized to a part of the brain involved in memory, which is why, you know, when we get older, we all have, many people have a you know a little bit of memory trouble. We have to reach for names and it's just a little harder to retrieve information as we oh, eat. Yep. And, that, and it gets scary when that happens. When it first it's, it, it's scary. And some people think it's the opening shot of Alzheimer's, but it's perfectly normal. It's part of normal aging. And that may be due to this very small, modest amount of these fibers, these tau fibers accumulating in people's brains that has not yet become pathological. Yeah, the reason I ask is, there, is there any substances in the cell that also interbind and get bound to these chains? Or is it just pure tau to tau? Like if you look at the fibers, are they just pure tau to tau? Or is there other stuff that tends to get lodged in there? And if so, if you could upregulate the presence of that in the brain, the neurons, perhaps that would, it would stop the, uh, the tau fibers from forming. Right. So people now are using this, and this is something that we do not do, but uh, some labs are trying to look at those fibers with the most advanced microscopic tools. The technique is called cryo-electron microscopy to try to see what else might be in there. And um, in some of those images, it looks like there might be something else in there. It's not clear yet what the identity of that is, but it's it's not a major component. They're, ma- they're mainly made of tau. But if we knew more about what is fitting inside these crevices that are tiny, uh, we maybe we can have a, a way to think about breaking them apart. Well, we already know by definition that you know, the, uh, I don't know what you call it, the inner part of the C structure can bind to other inner parts of the C structure. So, you know, have you looked at the, um, I don't even know how you'd figure this out, but I guess how do you determine the, like, the shape of the active areas on the inside of the C that we could think of? Has that been looked at in detail? Uh, it has been looked at in detail. So we know the shape in there. We know it's a protein, so it's made up of a chain of amino acids. And we know which amino acids are next to which other ones, which ones are coming into contact. So we know a lot about that structure. And it's a very interesting direction to go in to see if we can find, say, small molecules, potential drugs that may interdigitate within there and disrupt these uh, fibrils. Is that what you were asking? Yeah, could could you cause the uh, the two fingers and digits of the C to clump together so it can't bind to another C, but it just binds to itself, like collapse the C, you know, squish it together? Yeah, we don't have a way to do that yet. But uh, if we could figure out how to get stuff in there and cause, you know, prevent that structure, that interdigitated C structure, I think uh, that would be a big step forward. 
Well, what is the uh, specific amino acid? So if I have two C's that interdigitate, is the same amino acid binding from each to each other, or is it two different complementary amino acids that do the binding? They tend to be complementary amino acids. They tend to form these bonds between different amino acids, uh, and they're very stable. They are hard to break up, and um, they tend to, you know, if you want to use uh, one way in which you can break things up is to um, introduce a, a water molecule because water makes things soluble. So if you want to put what's called a protease in there to start to dissolve it, that would dissolve in a molecule of water. But these, the tight interior of these things excludes water. They're, they're, they're hydrophobic. So it's really hard to get into that dense core of the interdigitated sea structures. But yet the other fingers do, I mean, at least how many, how many fingers, I guess at least two fingers can fit within the sea in order to interdigitate, right? Or yes. only one fits and then the chain just goes in one direction or does it go bidirectional? Well, think of the two C's interdigitating in a two-dimensional structure, and now think of stacking them up in the third dimension. That's how it works. So there's these individual C's that are forming, and then there's just millions stacked one on top of the other uh, to make the long fibril. Oh, how does it? Okay. So I was just imagining a, a two-dimensional chain, again, when they interdigitate, but how do you get that third dimension? Does the, does the next... So the fibers will, what, grow to a certain length and then bind to each other? Or how, what, what does it look like, an X formation? Or how does this, if I visualize it, how does it grow? Like in all directions at once or just one direction first? They tend to grow in the direction they, what they do is, so we don't know this actual sequence of events at that level of detail to say, this happens first and this happens second. Because the way you do this work is, is that you only capture the end stage. You take somebody that had Alzheimer's disease, they've generously donated their brain to science. You extract these neurofibrillary tangles, you dig down and you do all the cryo-electron microscopy, which are very, quite intensive work. And then you get these images that take a lot of informatics to image them. And you see this static structure that's happened after the person Alzheimer's for many years. You we don't actually can see the intermediary stages very well. Uh, so, but we assume that Something about tau, we don't know if it's a monomer or an oligomer, uh, something is starting to misfold at just maybe a single molecule level. And then once that misfolding happens, the whole thing just, and that's right. what we need to learn. Yeah, well, I guess as you, you know, so there's misfolding and as you produce the, these misshapen C's, the more of them there are in the cell, the more likely there'll be encounter, C to C encounters and binding and fiber formation. And then as the fibers form, the more likely they'll twist around each other and knot up and everything, you know, like longer shoelaces, I guess. Yes. And um, we call that process seeding because uh, you put in, you know, some form of tau that may, in, in, now I'm talking about in cell culture, you put in some form of tau that um, is likely to become mis to, to misfold. And it then does exactly what you're saying. It's a template, the misfolding of more tau, and it starts to assemble these long structures. Has anyone thought of making the finger part of the C, but with no additional structure or with inert structure around it, so that it could selectively, you know, encounter these, these open C areas and bind to them, but yet not continue into a fiber or a chain? Uh, yes, uh, so because we know the exact amino acids that make up these uh, electron microscopic structure, the, uh, we can actually synthesize that set of amino acids in the lab and begin to do exactly that, to look at how they assemble in a test tube. Okay, but it hasn't gotten far enough where um, 
you know, a substance has been made that can enter into the cell and do that. So when you make them uh, synthetically, you, it is possible to put them into a cell. Um, you know, we're now talking about the very edge of science right now. And that's the kind of work that uh, has to be done is to start to take these synthetic forms of tau, put them into cells and see how what they're exactly doing as far as templating the normal tau. In, in cells. Yeah, and then I'm sorry to go so micro on this. I'm just imagining as we talk. Um, it's fascinating. So, in well, I mean, this is pretty contentious, I guess, but has anyone ever observed any microbiome in the brain? Microbes that are local around neurons and stuff and, uh, you know, or other parts of the body? Yeah, contentious is right. The um, I think um, for the most part, those ideas have been somewhat marginal. The um, But they have started to gain a little bit of traction. And um, one of them, there, there's several different directions that people have gone in. Some are just correlation studies in which, you know, you've heard about some of these studies where they say if you, uh, if, if you floss a lot and your micro, you avoid gingivitis, uh, you're less likely to get Alzheimer's because the connection to the brain is somehow there through bacteria in the mouth. Those are just correlation studies. We don't have a clue how that might work. But what there's one idea that has attracted me a little bit, which is, is that um, we're talking about proteins now that will tend to aggregate, right? I mean, we talked about how tau aggregates and we talked about how amyloid aggregates. So there is this idea that a very ancient immune system, the innate immune system, nothing to do with antibodies, that one way in which an organism can prevent infection is to use these aggregation properties of certain proteins to wall off an infectious organism. The the protein that is prone to aggregation might somehow find an invading organism and assemble and entomb the organism so it cannot spread or replicate. And uh, this is this mechanism, which is somewhat controversial, uh, may be part of the Alzheimer picture. That part of the reason we get amyloid accumulations in the brain uh, is because the amyloid is trying to to prevent the replication of an invading organism. I, it's a very speculative idea. I'm not sure if I fully believe it, but I think it's an intriguing hypothesis. Yeah, I had heard that uh, amyloid may be the result of uh, of an attempted healing of damaged areas. So it's not, uh, I mean, the healing, I guess, is like, you know, fibrosis in other areas, you know, after a heart attack or other parts of the body. So Unfortunately, it, it gunks things up and destroys the brain, but it's uh, it may not be there as a it may be there deliberately for healing. The body is attempt to heal that area. Yeah. So one of the things that piqued my interest in that hypothesis this the hypothesis is not our idea. It's been, it's out there. But what got me particularly interested uh, is now to bring our conversation full circle. Um, I mentioned the other work I do is in in Colombia, where we are looking at genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease, individuals that have these very serious mutations. And um, one finding that we have quite recently is that it, we have found that in the country there in Colombia, and it may, this may happen in other parts of the world too, but we know a lot about that population, is that the gene that carries these early onset Alzheimer's uh, mutations is a gene called presenilin. And you can get different mutations in that gene that all lead to the same phenotype, to Alzheimer's. But they're rare. They're very rare mutations. So we were surprised to find that in the population in Colombia, we found 11 different mutations. That's extraordinary because if you scour the entire world, you don't, you know, 11 represents something like, you know, 
not an insignificant proportion of all of them. And uh, so why would it be that in that population, there seems to be, okay, we haven't proven it, and we don't have the statistics, but why does there seem to be an excess of presenolin? Maybe they have been, uh, and just I want to caution everybody, this is a highly speculative notion, but maybe those mutations were protective for the population because evolution doesn't care if you get Alzheimer's disease later in life, but it does want you to survive an infectious disease. Clearly, the Colombian population after Christopher Columbus is very much decimated by infectious disease. You know, the population really was very much wiped out. And uh, maybe those mutations are there today because they also had some selective. So these are actual mutations. I mean, so I guess APOE, people are born with it, but are there any that appear to occur during the person's life? Or is it all inherited type uh, mutations? These are all inherited. They're from generation to generation. You know, most things that are, would be in the DNA would be would be inherited. And so APOE is inherited. And these again, has anyone looked at the epigenetic changes that these mutations can accumulate? People have looked at epigenetics. No one's hit a home run yet with epigenetics, but there are some suggestions that um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at epigenetic factors that are also playing a role here. But I don't think we've really you know, hit anything that looks really okay. So, what uh, what fronts in particular are you pushing forward on? What what's your specific focus? What hypotheses are you looking at? Yeah, well, we're very interested in these mutations that I talked about a moment ago, and collecting them all and learning as much as we can about them and understanding about uh, their origins. The population in Colombia is called a tricontinental admixture. The population is made up of the indigenous people, the Spanish invaders, and then. They began to import slaves after they left gold. And they, um, so you have Africans, Europeans, and indigenous people, and admixture, absolute amazing genetic menage of, of different types of combinations of genes and variants that make the population very rich for genetic exploration. So that's a big aspect of, on the other side of the coin, in the lab, we continue to create models in the dish, in culture dishes that can allow us to explore the molecular basis of the disease and use those models for drugs. Okay. And how many different um, mutations total seem to be correlated with some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's? Well, so of these serious mutations, if you look around, I mentioned there's 11 different ones in Colombia, but if you look around the whole world, of all the mutations in that one gene, remember a gene is made up of lots of these ATGCs, lots of letters. So there's many places in one gene where you can get a mutation, just like in SARS-CoV-2, lots of places these mutations. So in this gene called presenilin, around the world, there are now probably somewhere over 200 of them. And we have 11 or maybe 12 of them is one small part of the world. But there are other genes too. There's another gene called presenilin 2 has a few mutations. And the, amylo- the gene that encodes amyloid itself called the amyloid precursor, also has a handful of mutations. So those are the serious ones. But then, like APOE, if you have the, the, the variant called APOE4, a lot of people, and there are other risk factors. Genetics is something that we really have to learn more about to understand the risk that people have. For- okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? How can they follow you? Well, I'm uh, easy to find on the web. So just uh, Google my name and you can email there for me. And I'm really happy to emails or that would probably be the best way to communicate. Okay. Well, very good. Well, kind of thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for all the great questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.